Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Tuesday, 7th of March on the Michael Reed Show this morning. The government announced an end to the eviction ban. The Green Party wants you to leave your car at home and take public transport. AA Ireland has a suggestion. New research from the ESRI on an increase in inward migration in recent decades in Ireland and Northern Ireland and what supports exist for crime for victims of crime. And if you want to contact the programme this morning, please, please feel free to do that on... WhatsApp 0861800658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie Good morning. You're with Alan Cantwell through till 11 o'clock this morning. Now the Transport Minister says provisions will be put in place to protect renters when the eviction ban expires. Government has agreed that it will end as planned on March 31st on a phased basis to June. Cabinet is meeting this morning to discuss the ban as well as a budget package for both tenants and landlords. Minister Raymond Ryan says the government has plans to ensure renters are protected. Well joining us for reaction on this it was an announcement more or less taken last night following a meeting of all the the, um, government party leaders, but it will be sent to Cabinet today as uh, Labour's Aon O'Reard on. Aon, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Do you accept um, that the government had no choice in this matter when you consider that there was a realistic prospect of a legal challenge being taken to it? So no, th- their hands were tied. Don't accept that. We were told that last year. That's the reason as to why the eviction ban wouldn't be brought in the first place. Um, we were told it couldn't be done at all. Previously, even though it had been brought in in 2015, previously. Um, so this legal argument doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. It's not perfect and it's not something that is sustainable, long-term an eviction ban. But considering the numbers, record numbers of homelessness we have, particularly of homeless children, so we're looking at 11,000 or so uh, in, in homelessness and 3,500 children, that what you need is an eviction ban to give um, that, uh, you know, the sector some space in order to, to bring in other mechanisms to, to address the issues such as the tenant and fishery scheme. Now, uh, you know, hiding behind legal challenges is not really good enough. I think this feels like a political win for Fine Gael because when, in all of the um, responses we've got from the Taoiseach uh, when, when, when questioned by my party leader, Ivana Batrick, he kept on making an equivalence between those in homelessness with those who are homeowners returning from abroad. Now, I can tell you, Alan, the difference between people contacting my office who are in a treasure eviction or facing homelessness versus those who are coming back from abroad and want to access the, you know, the, 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 the home that they own 
there is no uh, you know uh, a correlation between those two okay. numbers. We are absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say, have, having listened to the news last night, I, I'm dreading work this morning because I know what is in my office this morning already is a flood of queries from people who are facing eviction and have nowhere literally. Okay, let me, Deputy, bring you back to the initial question I put to you around Mm -hmm. the potential for a legal challenge. You can be sure that the government sought counsel from the AG, Rossa Fanning, on this. There is no doubt that the Irish Property Owners Association, and they have flagged this for quite some time, that they have had enough, that the prospect of them taking legal action was very much alive. So on the basis of that, the AG's advice, surely they were hamstrung that this is the best they can do. And if there's a positive on this, surely is the fact that they have now been manoeuvred into a corner where they will have to present a package of measures to resolve the situation, long-term sustainable measures, to resolve the situation for good and for once and for all. But they haven't done that. And when this was announced last October, if a, a series of measures had been brought in in order to ramp up social affordable housing, ramp up the tenant and citrus scheme, I mean, what we're constantly told that from government is that opposition has have no solutions. We have proposed the tenant and citrus scheme, which means that as a landlord who wants to exit the market, uh, wants to sell their property, and on that basis wants to evict somebody, we are saying that it's not necessary to council the local authority come in, you know, purchase that property, and the, and the, and the tenants can stay in. What has happened in my in, in my own council area? We just got a notification last night. There's only 173 such uh, such cases uh, being processed. Only seven of them were realised in January or February of, uh, of this year. So you know, there are any amount of solutions that could have come in uh, in tandem. Uh, with the eviction ban as um, as announced last October. It wasn't done. Uh, and now what we're facing is, is I feel, uh, Fine Gael giving the nod to their own supporter base, their own landlord class, that they feel uh, they need to get support of, uh, and allowing this to no, go... No, I, 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 I want to stop you there, Deputy. I mean, the reality is, this has to be a whole approach of all stakeholders involved in this. Worked. That is, no, no, hang on, hold, hold on a second. We yeah. have to bring landlords into it, we have to bring local authorities into it, and we have to bring government into it. And if there, there is, a, if there is an acceptable package of measures that will resolve the issue, what is wrong with that? There is no, there isn't one single homeless agency, from thresholds, the father of my, uh, my, my very trust, to to any reputable homeless agency who is saying that this is the right approach. Nobody is suggesting that this is sustainable long term. But we are saying that in tandem with an eviction ban, you have to bring in measures such as the tenants and citrus scheme, such as uh, ramping up social and affordable housing, in order to ensure uh, that people will not face homelessness. And that hasn't been done. How can you have, uh, listen to government ministers who are saying, well, it ha- didn't work? It's a bit like tying a rag around a, a leaking pipe that begins, still drips, and then saying, well, it's not working. What the eviction ban did do was, was to stem the flow. It did increase homelessness, but it began to stem the flow. I now have a situation up in my office this morning of people, individuals and families who will now say to me, that they're going to face homelessness because they're facing uh, facing eviction, and those those landlords, we are told uh, from various voices that it's red tape or whatever are, are, are forcing people out of the market. It's actually because the the market is so profitable at the moment, which is what the uh, the PRTB are saying. Yeah, I, I know, but but, but deputy, market. you have to accept as well that a lot of these small landlords have been underwater for many years because of what happened during the recession. They got into this, you know, you know, it's big boy stuff. You get into investment, you win, you lose. But they got into it on the basis of perhaps 
you know, thinking about their pension in the future. And then all of a sudden things went pear-shaped. They've been underwater. And they thought, no, no, from a business perspective, it makes sense for them to sell now because the market is buoyant. And and they can sell, and they can sell to the council with the Towns and Citrus scheme that I've already outlined. However, only seven of those those sales were completed in Dublin City, the entire Dublin City, in January and February this year. And there is no moral equivalence between somebody who's trying to cash in their, uh, for their pension and a family facing homelessness. There just isn't. And this is a hard choice the government have to make. And I would say, if you are a landlord, particularly where I am, and I imagine in Drahan and Dundalk as well, the rental prices have been uh, at historical highs, absolutely historical highs. So I don't think that the landlord is, 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 is not making money currently or is not a profitable uh, position for them to be in. Interest rates, interest rates are going up. Half of what they get in rent goes back to the exchequer and tax. I would also, I would also uh, say that, look, we do need landlords. The, the vast majority of those in the private rented sector who are providing housing are small landlords, one or two properties. What we have said consistently, and we've been saying this since October, is that the Tenth and Citrus scheme was a way out, that you could do these things in tandem. In tandem, what we have been suggesting as well is that if we do, the government were to persist with the eviction ban to the end of the year, then such you know initiatives and schemes will be able to be seen to be a success, and then we wouldn't have uh, the cliff edge. What we have now is a is, is a cliff edge facing far too many families, and I'm going to look at now my, in my clinic, and I'm sure in Jed Nash. In, in Loud as well is going to be looking at his clinic of increased families and children facing homelessness because government have decided to listen uh, to the whims of, okay. of, of the property owners association. Explain to me then why if it operates so simply the tenant in situ scheme, why it hasn't been adopted or pushed out to the level that's required in order to you know, bridge the gap between those who are going to be evicted and those who actually have a home as a result of this scheme? Because it's been patchy, uh, because there hasn't really been a direction from, from central government, because certain local authorities have been quite successful. At least Loud County Council talking to Jed Nash have been quite good at it. Other councils haven't been so good at it, including my own. Uh, and so there needs to be uniformity uh, of approach. But this w- requires major government investment and an um, increased impetus from government to, to ensure that people understand the scheme, that landlords uh, understand the scheme, that tenants understand the scheme, and that it's a major plank of government policy. But if you're going to, like, you know, look at the figures I have just received to me last night from a, from a council question, saying that there's only been seven uh, such, you know, initiatives completed in January and February in two whole months of this year at the height of a, of a homelessness uh, crisis as the eviction ban is coming, uh, coming to an end. But then surely there's an issue. Okay, just before we move on, I want to ask you, Deputy, in relation to the package of measures that the Housing Minister is going to present um, to Cabinet this morning, which will include whatever it may be, incentives to landlords and protections for tenants. Surely that's only the beginning of a process that's going to take a very long time to bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but uh, we've always said that there's been far too much um, you know, reliance on the, on the private market in terms of home building. You know, we have any amount of planning permissions that have been granted that could have solved the housing crisis twice over. But uh, the issue is that we have, we have those who are, who are in ownership of those lands sitting on them, flipping the sites and not building what they were given permission to build. We'll, we'll wait until the measures have been announced. I mean, we hope there'll be some countermanding measures from, from the end of the eviction ban. But of course, we all now know about the eviction ban ending because it was leaked last night. We don't know about the other measures that are going to be announced. So we'll wait and see. I mean, look, government opposition, none of us is in the business of having people uh, homeless. 
Uh, but at the same time, I do think it's been particularly cruel because I can think of named individuals in my own head who've been talking to me about their own situation and their, and, and their children's future are worried about this eviction ban ending. And I'm going to have to talk to them this morning. And I don't know what I'm going to tell them. OK, if, if I may, um, uh, Deputy, just talk about one other issue that pretty much comes under your remit in terms of you being the spokesperson on education for the Labour Party and being a former uh, school teacher and school principal. And that is what will be presented by the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, this coming Thursday around uh, a root and branch review, I suppose, of the primary cur- curriculum, the first time in almost a quarter of a century. It's ambitious, but is it realistic that she will get in the changes that she requires in the time frame that has been outlined? Well, I hope so. And, and in fairness to Minister Foley, while I've been very critical of government this morning in terms of the eviction ban, I think she's making the right moves here. It has been moved since last year. We're talking about it, an increased emphasis on foreign languages from third, third class up. We're giving more autonomy to primary schools to have seven hours a month in which to maybe focus on areas of, of, of issue in their own schools, be it literacy or numeracy or oral language that maybe they feel needs to be focused on. It could be art, it could be could be the visual arts, could be could be physical education. Um, there's a there's a, a decreased emphasis on religion, which I think, to be honest, is something that's well overdue. Uh, and I, I I think the minister to be congratulated on this. We 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 don't do reform in the school system very well. Uh, there has been a, a suggestion of a citizens assembly in education, which I doubt is going to happen now in the in the lifetime of this government in order to bring forward some much needed changes. But uh, I, I think on balance, it's going in the right direction. Uh, but as long as we bring teachers and SNAs with us, um, there's a prospect of real change and, and that children will benefit. So I think it's, uh, these are positive moves. Um, but we'll see what, what the forward announcement is on Thursday. But it's been well moved and it's been, it's been well received so far. OK, well, when you consider the magnitude of what is being proposed at the primary level and consider then what the Minister had proposed around the Leaving Cert, Paper 1, Paper 2, 5th and 6th year for the Leaving Cert, it was in English and Irish, she had to do a flip-flop on that. And on the face of things, it looked pretty easy that something as simple as that could be pushed through, but it wasn't. Well, I can accuse ministers of flip-flops, but I mean, I don't think that's necessarily fair. I mean, we ask, we ask ministers sometimes to be bold and to be brave and to make changes, and they do, and it doesn't come off. You know, I don't think necessarily accusing them of flip-flops is, is, is fair. I think there are, there are too many voices in this space who aren't being progressive, who aren't being, uh, you know... You're, you're talking about what, what voices? Teachers? Because ultimately yeah, they're I think, the people... I'd be, I'd be frank with this, and I'm a Labour Party politician... Um, you know, the teacher unions, I think, need to be part of the solution here. Uh, I've listened to some of what they've said. I've listened to what they said over the course of the pandemic. I thought over the course of the pandemic, I, you know, we were able to put young people at the, at the centre of the exam system. I think we probably have to decouple the leaving cert from the CAO system in, 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 a, in a better way because it's effectively, a, you know, it, it, it's an entrance exam for, for third level or for the colleges of education. Um, but certainly, uh, we need to have a little bit more radical talk because the Leaving Cert has not changed fundamentally since I did it in 1994. And 1994 is neither today nor yesterday, Alan, as you probably appreciate mm-hmm. yourself. So, um, so I, I, I think we need to be braver because it's such an outdated exam. Putting all that pressure on young people at the end of, of sixth year isn't fair and doesn't actually show the, the, their capabilities in a real way. So, um, look, reform is good and the Minister is, is, is driving it. But I just, I, I, have a, I have a concern now after these proposals were dropped in terms of the, uh, the, the, the end of fifth year exams uh, in terms of Irish and English, mm-hmm. what, where, where the proposal is now. OK, so, are, so what are you are saying, that the single reform. biggest obstacle to reform within the curriculum centres around teachers? 
I, I don't think that's fair. Um, that wouldn't be a fair thing to say, but I, I, I do know there has been resistance within the teacher unions as to uh, as to the change uh, of the leaving cert format and uh, and continual assessments. Uh, I know there has been concerns around assessing their own their own students. I understand that, uh, but however. Uh, we can't stand over a system, uh, a leaving cert, which still traumatises young people, which which makes young people so absolutely unhappy, which doesn't uh, reflect their uh, their abilities. Uh, and at the same time, you know, uh, stick with what what we've always had. Okay. We had an opportunity during we saw during sorry during COVID how things can change if we all work together. I think we've a, we've a potential to do that. And uh, just on on this matter, and finally, because it's a, it's t- it's a topic that has uh, resurfaced over the past twenty four to forty eight hours, and that's around the whole issue of homework. Do you subscribe to the notion that students should be given homework to bring home and do, and potentially spend a number of hours per evening at it? Is it worth doing? Because statistically you know, reports will tell you that it doesn't have any net benefit in terms of their intellectual outcome or educational outcome. Well, you see, I was a, a, I was a practitioner in this field. I know what it is, that you spend a long time setting the homework within the class day. The next morning, you spend a long time correcting it. Well, you know, a, a, a long enough time. Uh, it stresses students out who maybe don't have the home environment to do it or, um, you know, don't feel they've done it correctly. Uh, you then have to admonish some children who haven't done their homework. It, it, it doesn't add to the joy of learning. Now, it's an individual call for an individual school to make, and sometimes schools will want to you know, not abandon homework because parents will feel that the school isn't being serious mm-hmm. about education. And you know, parents sometimes have a view as well. It was done in my day, therefore it's a, you know, it, it should be it should be continued to be done. But we have to. But well, there is, I suppose, the practical side of it, because when you start something young in primary school as an allocating a certain amount of time in the evening post-school, it then gets you ready for secondary school and into university that you have to carve out more and more time to put the work in, to do the research, to write the essays, write the whatever you need to do. But there's very little joy attached to it. You're pushing an open door here, <laughs> definitely. We need to double down on the joy here, Alan, all right? So we need, we, need, we, need, we need to find a mechanism which is more enjoyable for parents to want to, to, to do a level of learning at home with their, with their children, being reading together or whatever. I think as it's currently structured, as, uh, as we currently know it, homework is, is, is not a source of joy. It's a source of dread. And if young people have that sense of dread around something academic or something educational, but then it really needs to be examined. And the amount of class time that is taken correcting and setting it probably could be spent doing something else. OK, Deputy, thank you so much for joining us. That's hey, Deputy Aon O'Reilly of the Labour Party, the education spokesperson, joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Text or WhatsApp on 086-1800-658 or if you want to email us this morning, it's email michael at lmfm.ie and if you've just joined us, very welcome to the programme. You're with Alan Cantwell in for Michael for the next week or so. Now the AA Ireland is calling on the government to introduce free public transport and shared bike trials across the country for a dedicated period before announcing any further penalties to motorists. The call comes as the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, is set to announce further proposed measures to get drivers out of their cars and into other modes of transport. The Cabinet will discuss a memo to reduce private car usage in city centres today. Paddy Cummins is Head of Communications at AA Ireland uh, and joins us this morning just to give us, uh, I suppose, a deeper insight into what they are proposing, a way around this to make life a little bit easier for everyone. Paddy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Alan. I would presume that, you know, in the main, you don't have any major problem with the government 
government and the Minister for Transport engaging in a process whereby we're going to reduce emissions, get less traffic on the road and more people back on the bike in public transport. No, absolutely not, Alan. And, and we acknowledge that we, we need to start looking at different ways to get around and, and, and certainly reduce our car use, especially in terms of commuting and, and driving around the city centre. So, but what we also know is that the alternatives maybe aren't perfect at the moment. So really what we're looking for is, is a practical suggestion that we would uh, change away from look constantly looking to punish 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 or tax the motorist without at least encouraging them to try the alternative so if we did have a, a free public transport trial maybe just maybe people would say okay while it's free i'm going to try it uh, and and they might realize okay this works for me or it also might highlight okay look the capacity isn't there and it also might highlight that uh, there's no route there for them if they're in Carlow or Leitrim or, 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 or Westmead that you know there is no option for them um, so so really it's just it's a practical suggestion it's been interesting over the last 24 hours since we, since we mentioned this some people you know are suspicious of why we would be asking this but you know it really is just a way to see look can we just try it and see what happens Okay so what are you saying that the Minister is trying to track, crack a nut with a sledgehammer well, uh, you know, I think that the minister is, you know, is is doing good work in in many areas, and and you know, if you look at the plans that are coming ahead, you know, they are they're they are very far ahead of what we had over the last few years. I just feel that, you know, in the case of people who live outside the pale, and even you know, in in our own region, allowed than me, you know, some people would will be listening to you thinking, oh, well, I can't get a bus to work, or I can't, the frequency isn't there, or it's not available for me, or it's too expensive. So we are taxing people further and further. We know fuel prices you know, have been reached record levels. That's one area that's going to be looked at. Parking is going to be increased and then congestion charges brought in. If, if people feel that these are coming down the line and they have written off in their head that they're going to use public transport because it isn't, isn't there for them, then we, we have an issue. And, and I think what we need to do is at least get people to look at the alternatives and I think a good way would, would be to, to offer this trial. OK, well, it's important to stress, first off, if people are listening to this thinking that in the next couple of weeks or months they're going to be hit with some sort of surcharge going into the cities or towns, it's not going to happen. This is really a discussion process that's going to take the best part of a year or thereabouts on the basis of that um, memo going to Cabinet this morning. So there is that time there, but I want to go back to the question, and you prompted it, what is in this for AA Ireland? Why do you believe that this is something that you should get involved in? Well, uh, you know, we, we do like our cars. We have lots. We obviously have members and customers who who use their cars. But I think people. So you're hoping what that the research will come back and say, "Hang on a second here." While well, we like the idea that you know we should be on public transport, we prefer the car. Absolutely not. I, I you know, if if you look at how people use their cars, and if you look at how people use their cars the weekend, they drop their kids to rugby and Gaelic and soccer. They do the weekly shopping. They might use their car for more leisure activities. We don't think that the car is the perfect solution for commuting. It's far from it. We don't even think that, that you know, replacing cars with EVs is a perfect solution because you're just replacing one vehicle with another and still having congestion. Uh, you know, for us, cars are still going to form part of society going forward, whatever form they take, be them EVs or hydrogen powered. Mm. But we need to uh, to look at how they're used. Uh, you know, there's, there's very few people listening who could absolutely tomorrow abandon their car altogether for, for family reasons in particular if you have kids. But we can certainly look at improving the commuting uh, belt. And, and, you know, how many people are driving up and down the M1, M2 every day in lines of traffic because the, the 
for them the public transport system doesn't work. Well, this this this, this is the the problem here, and I've listened to eminently more qualified uh, people and experts in this field, and they come back to the same thing: we have to have the infrastructure there in terms of transportation. It's not there. And I say that from the point of view of somebody who's very lucky, who has the dart of the doorstep, the Lewis and bus routes. And what I get back from my daughters is buses don't come when they're supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. They don't come in time. They don't come at all. And when you're dealing with that in, in, a, in a, a densely populated area and then try and supplant that into rural Ireland, how the hell would something like this actually work? Well, it's going to be difficult. Um, but I think, you know, the, the reason we... Or want to explore the practicalities of it more than the theory is to to try and at least get the people who have decent public transport on their uh, doorstep to use it a little bit more and then let's have a look at the areas that are are really not working because we don't we haven't had the experience yet of uh, people moving on mass overnight to uh, to, to use the public transport yeah. that is available for them. So let's let's ha- let's try it. Let's see what happens, and let's get the learnings from it and move on from there. There's one thing, and you touched on it yourself there, Paddy, and that is the sheer volume of traffic. And let's talk about the M1, the M50. I came up that road this morning. I was on it at whatever shortly after six a.m. I was utterly gobsmacked because the road coming down was literally bumper to bumper at that time. So we're reaching a point now where the system is being choked to the point where we may not be able to use it in an efficient manner. Public transport alone, will, will that resolve the situation or do we need to look at, you know, the bigger picture in terms of the volume of traffic that we need to build wider roads? We ha- we have, but there's another thing as well is that we we have to look at employers and we have to see why have we crept back into all coming to our offices. We all coped incredibly well, or many of us did anyway, who could co- cope very well during the pandemic when we all worked from home. The people were doing a blended work, and and we can see it. The evidence is there in the roads that that's starting to to reverse. Tuesday it appears to be the busiest day of the week now, so it, it would appear that you know today is is the new Monday, uh, and that's because people are returning back to the office. Maybe not every day, but but more often than they might have before. So we we need to look at that again because we did we did see a huge drop off in, in traffic during COVID. We did see an improvement in air quality. So we you know our employers um, at, at fault here. By dragging uh, dragging some workers back in, or is it down to the uh, to the workers themselves wanting to go back? So that that's another thing to look at. Okay, just before I let you go, Paddy, I want to ask you about how far advanced is this particular initiative? Have you had discussions with the relevant stakeholders that you will need to have the discussions with to try and get it across the line, or is there any appetite for it? it certainly, you know, we've seen. Um, Minister Ryan speaking in the media this morning saying that the free public transport wouldn't wouldn't work because and I quote that it would it would add more unnecessary journeys so you know it doesn't appear that there's going to be much of an appetite for this but you know from our point of view it's just we feel and you know it, it seems strange for maybe an automobile association saying that we we really need a way to encourage people to at least try the alternatives and and for now it doesn't appear that those uh, are forthcoming without punishment so it'll be tax 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 in order to to beat people into the public transport network um without first a, a little bit of encouragement so all we're really asking is a little bit of carrot before any more stick okay and just very finally the whole target of 50% reduction in emission, uh, emissions by 2030 
Is that realistic, do you think? Oh, it's going to be challenging. I mean, we're moving in the right direction in terms of the take-up of, of EVs. So the people yeah, who are... Albeit that's know, from a very low base, though, Paddy. Yeah, of course. It is. It, it is from a very low base. But, but we are, you know, it's going to be a big ask. It's going to be a big challenge. And, and you know, we all we all play our part. You know, even even down to things like fuel. We've, you know, our own company, we've moved to HVO Diesel, which is uh, provides less emissions. So there's lots of, that fleets and companies can do. But, yeah, it's going to be a big ask. Okay, Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications at AA Ireland. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Just to get to some of your comments that came into us on WhatsApp 086 1800 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. In relation to energy prices, Jack was in touch to say he just got an electricity bill for his small shop unit and it's gone from €200 Euro up to €700. Euro. This is not sustainable for businesses and he says it's no wonder that so many businesses are going under in relation to the eviction ban. Sheila cannot believe that the government is refusing to extend the eviction ban. Do they not realise the implications of lifting it? It will leave hundreds of people facing imminent eviction with nowhere to go. She cannot believe how heartless they are being. This move just reinforces how far removed from the reality of life our public reps are. They have no concept of how much some people are struggling. Rural Independent Group of TDs believes businesses not accepting cash is a flagrant violation of people's rights. It has put forward a motion urging the government to recognise the importance of cash as a means of payment. The group says notes and coins are crucial to prevent the exclusion of vulnerable groups such as the elderly or rural residents. Deputy Matty McGrath says Ireland shouldn't be at the mercy of external players, forcing us to be a cashless society. And Deputy Matty McGrath joins us this morning. Uh, Deputy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, unfortunately, this is pro Progress on the march, the inexorable march of progress, and there's not a whole lot we can do to stop it, Matty. I don't believe it's progress. It's regressive, as far as I'm concerned. And good morning, Alan. Great to talk to you on, on this show. Um, we have a motion down calling on the government to put some kind of a, a rein on this little bank and indeed the banks. As you know, we're major shareholders, on, a very major shareholder in AIB, and we're in the Bank of Ireland. But Successive ministers of finance have sat silently, and by remaining silent, they're acquiescing to what the banks are doing. But sure, look at Matty, they can't get involved in the running, day-to-day running of banks. They have to keep their nose out of the business. Uh, Undue interference is not acceptable when it comes to the banking uh, sector. I'm not asking to do that. I'm asking the public public sector, or sorry, the government's reps, the people's reps, that are on the board of those banks, which there are two on board, to play their part. Uh, and when the banks announced a suite of, of closures last summer, uh, the, the, the public um, people that were appointed on the boards, the representatives of the state, of the public, said there's no end about it or they hadn't told the ministers. This is clearly not good enough. We, the, the public painfully are paying back the debts caused by the collapse in the banking system in this country. And this is their tanks. I mean, in some towns now, where banks even have remained open after protests. AIB, I mean, here this well, well, look, at De- Deputy, perhaps you'll outline to us the sort of stories that you're hearing, because I know from my own point of view, I, I don't use cash. It's all uh, card or whatever. And that's fine for someone like me who understands mm. the mechanism whereby you have to engage in that process. But give me the stories of the difficulties that the more senior members of your constituency are facing because of this. 
I don't want to be accused of ageism. What about people with intellectual difficulties? Well, no, no, I accept that, Matty, but I mean, more yeah. often than not, it's probably the more mature members of society that they say it's because it is, of a it lack is shock, of... It is a shock few times to see some very old people and they're well able to, they're very proficient on, the, you know, electronic uh, transactions. No, but it's people in general. I mean, look, take, uh, as we live today and as we have a few bob in our pocket, and thankfully with grandchildren, which I have nine, we're blessed, thank God, and if we have friends or we have confirmations or communes, what are you going to do? Swipe the car and have a machine in the house to swipe to give them a few power? I mean, this thing hasn't been taught through. It's heartless and it's, it's nonsense, but it's control of the people. That's what it is. And every penny then, every transaction costs you money. And every, you're, 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 it's really controlling where we are, what we do, what we spend. It's leading to much more serious issues down the road. Can I just say that people have control of their cash? They can put a few bob back in the post office when they get their pension. They can put a few bob in the credit June or whatever, uh, they can, and they don't have the bills in, maybe unexpected bills if they go wild on the credit card or issues like that. So there are many, many reasons, social reasons that people uh, are affected and it has an inordinate effect mm. on people who are vulnerable and lower But, look, but look, Matt, you, do, ex- for, you do accept that... Yeah. It's fine for people that want new transactions, and I use them myself, but let's be honest, but I believe cash is king. Uh, Central Bank uh, were calling on the government to introduce legislation uh, before the summer recess to ensure that our Central Bank has stocks of cash available to them. Okay, but you accept, Matty, that that the business model, the business model of banks, Matty... Challenges there that we don't know. Take, for instance, the the cyber attacks. Take, for example, uh, power averages, and we could face many with the way this government are handling the, 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 the electricity price. Okay, Ma- Matty, I'm just got, we're running out of time on this. Matty, Matty, I'm running out. Matty, Matty, I'm, can Matty hear me? They cut off from people, and they won't have the power to walk these machines. So yeah. then they'll be glad of the till and the cash to sell their wares and people to buy their wares. So this is not being taught to. Okay, I'm going to try and squeeze in another question here, Matty, before we go. But you, do you not accept that... You don't want to go down this road. I don't think Matty can hear me. I can hear you, yeah. Oh, sorry, Matty. I mean, I'm running out of time with this. I need to put another question to you. And it is yes. this. Do you not accept that the business model of banks is changing and that is just a societal and a business thing that they have to engage in in order to survive? So the best that we can expect from the banks is perhaps a cash machine, an ATM machine in towns, but they won't be in every isolated rural part of Ireland or villages. That's the best you know we can what? hope for. In, in many cases, in towns in Clonmel and Clare, sometimes we can, none of the ATMs work. If it's a bank holiday, they only fix till Tuesday or Wednesday. No, no, this is the Labour policy. Banks that tell me they're not filling the banks with cash, they're not repairing them when they're out. Listen, the customer is paying for these services. The customer is paying to be a user of the bank. So do they not want customers? Obviously, they don't. So the bottle might be changing, but the people should have their say here. Contact their representatives, ask them to support our motion, and indeed uh, stop this onward march of cashless, and God knows what follows that. So I, I, I think it's very important that the customer it used to be always right. I, I think I'm in business myself with 41 years, and my motto is the customer is unfortunately always right. You have to telegraph to your customers and sometimes you have to tip the balance in favour of the customer okay. rather than your employee or something, but that's the way it goes. Okay. It's the beat. Matty, we leave it there. Um, Deputy Matty McGrath, thank you for joining us this morning. And just on that particular point, um, 
And, and I thought about this in terms of a cashless society and the one bugbear of mine when it comes to cashless purchases is tickets for GAA matches. Now, I, I go to quite a lot of GAA matches and as someone who goes to matches, you buy the programme, you have the hard copy of the ticket that you put into the programme and you store it away. But now it's all online. So you go online, you book your seat for whatever match you want to go and see and all you get is a piece of paper. It just isn't the same sort of thing. So I can absolutely understand people of a certain generation who would find it exceptionally difficult to try and go online, buy a ticket for a GAA match. Because more often than not, what we're hearing now, when matches are on, there's a call out from the GAA to say, please don't arrive here with cash because no tickets will be available. So it's only one book bear of mine. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Michael at LMFM.ie. That is the email if you want to make contact with us this morning or you can WhatsApp 0861800658. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties is carrying out research to understand the experiences of victims of crime in this country. The findings of this research for victims of crime in Leinster will be used to develop training to improve victim supports around the country. The most recent findings from the Garda Public Attitude Survey found that only one third, 34%, of victims surveyed were provided with details of victim support services or helplines in 2021. This has dropped from 51% in 2018 and 44% in 2019. Joining us this morning is Liam Herrick, Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Liam, good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Can I ask you, just before we get into this particular research, um, in relation to the support services that are provided, are they sufficient to meet the demands if everybody knew that they were available to them? Good morning, Alan. I think that that is, of course, a key question here. Um, there's one question about whether enough information is being provided to people about services, and the second question is if, if there are sufficient services available in that case. And I think the answer, sadly, to both questions is no. Um, it, it's, it's actually quite regrettable that it, it seems that the situation is disimproving in that the number of members of the public that are, are being informed about victim support services when they are victimised um, is declining. Um, whether that's an indication that there's a failure on the part of Angarda Shikana in particular that their staff are not properly trained or provided with enough information so that they can inform people about the support services, that might be one part of the problem, but there's undoubtedly a further problem that there's not sufficient services in the community and we suspect strongly, and I suppose that's one of the purposes of this research, that there is a geographical uh, difference here, that there's a postcode lottery dimension to it, that services are more available in some parts of the country than others and anecdotally we know that that is the case but we'd like to get that more confirmed. Where are you suggesting that they are at a a, a greater um, proliferation than in other parts of the country? Well, I mean, unsurprisingly, I suppose, uh, in in Dublin, there would be more services, although those services are severely overstretched because some of the larger and more established national support services are obviously located in Dublin. Um, But the capacity of those services to provide supports even to people in Dublin, is limited, uh, particularly, for example, for the support services working with victims of sexual violence and abuse, that that they have long waiting lists at the moment for uh, counselling and other supports. And the situation, uh, I think it's fair to assume, is worse as you get further from Dublin. So I think it is a very difficult situation. Um, And I think perhaps the public don't always know that that you, you do have very strong rights if you are a victim of crime. Going back to the 
EU Victims Directive of 2013 and legislation in Ireland in 2017 that even if you don't make a formal report about uh, being a victim of crime, you still are entitled to access services and be informed with information about services. Uh, And it just hasn't really been implemented as much as we would have hoped. There was a lot of political commitment uh, to really strengthen victims' rights when the legislation was introduced, but that hasn't been fulfilled. For example, in the last election, we called on all of the parties to support the establishment of a victims' commissioner, as exists in Britain and in Northern Ireland, uh, and sadly, that was not taken up by the current government. So the victims of crime in in Ireland are poorly served compared to victims of crime in other countries. Now, I'm sure, as I have, you have seen the latest crime stats from the Gardaí, which were released, I think it was towards the middle of last week, and what was striking about that was the increase in domestic violence, the increase in sexual crimes, crimes against children, and more startling was crimes against the person, which I think were up 111% on 2022. So taking those things into consideration and the seriousness of some crimes compared to others, not that I want to dilute how somebody may uh, react to a crime, no matter how insignificant we may think it is, but nonetheless they need support. But given the seriousness of some of the crimes that are committed, surely we have to put a lot more resources into that to ensure, as you say, that there aren't the waiting lists there. Uh, Absolutely. I think it's quite distressing for um, organisations that we work with who have experts, expert psychologists and other counselling staff trying to provide supports for victims of the most serious types of crime, including sexual crime. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To have to tell clients that they may be a long waiting list before they're able to offer them an initial appointment. That's a situation that is completely unacceptable. Uh, These are people that are are deserving of the state support and they're not getting it. And I think if you look at the recent Garda statistics, um, 
that th- there are questions being raised. I mean, on one level that there is a normalisation after COVID. Some areas of offending uh, declined significantly during the pandemic uh, and there may be a returning to what is a more baseline level. But with regard to certain types of crime, uh, the guards themselves are indicating that they believe that there is kind of a more long-term increase, uh, particularly with regard to domestic violence, sexual abuse and Mm. so on, which is partly perhaps due to an increased level of awareness in society and people being more confident to come forward, which is good. But if that's the case, we need to be able to support them. And uh, I I think it is a real disappointment that the current government has not given this the priority that we had hoped. We will be calling on all parties in the lead up to next election to make a really strong commitment to establish a national victims commissioner and also then to ensure a real um, rolled out uh, national strategy for support services. The current Minister for Justice has said that she, she is intent on establishing a new office with regard to sexual and domestic violence, but we need one for all victims of crime. Okay, let me just ask you then the nature of the research that you are carrying out in the Leinster area. Surely that will just underpin what we already know in relation to what is out there and what victims of crime are being told. So so on our website www.iccl.ie you'll see a survey uh, for victims of crime to talk about it's a short survey, it takes 15 minutes to complete, um, which will uh, outline their experience of accessing support services or not and the information they were provided it is crucial that we have a concrete evidence base to get a picture of what's actually happening in the country. We know that there are shortcomings but I think we need to uh, get a very clear picture of what they are and hear directly from people about what their experience has been. This then will empower us to go to government and to prove a a clear case of what's needed in society. And we're doing this as part of a European-wide survey as well. So there will be an aspect here of being able to compare Ireland to other countries to get a clear picture of how we can make things better, how we can get up to, I think, what would be more an acceptable standard. So what we're really looking for here is to hear the voices of victims of crime. We don't want a, a paper exercise of groups like ourselves just guessing what the situation is. We want to hear directly from victims of It takes 15 minutes and this is an opportunity for people to give a voice to their experience. And talk to me about the experience and the voices that you have heard in terms of the impact crime has had on them because they haven't been able to access some form of support or some sort of, um, you know, help mentally or otherwise as a result of the consequences of crime. I mean, I think for the research we've done over several years, previous research projects in this, the constant refrain you hear from people is that the criminal justice system re-traumatizes people that have been the victim of crime. They they suffer, of course, initially when they suffer the first incidents of crime, whatever it might be, um, but then they are re-traumatized through the criminal justice system, either through the failures to properly support them or perhaps through the conflict that ensues in court proceedings or engagement with the criminal justice system they suffer again and I think as a society that really is something we need to address Uh, rather than actually trying to recompense and support and help people to heal from a traumatic experience sometimes uh, our criminal justice system makes things even worse and I, I think that that is something as a society we need to do. Like we in the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, we work on human rights across the justice system. And I, th- I think a key learning for us is that 
the justice system is not a zero-sum game. You don't um, give rights to victims by taking them away from people who are accused of crime. There are ways in which the criminal justice system can be improved for everybody. There's a lot that we can do to support victims in the criminal justice system, which doesn't diminish the rights of people who might be uh, before the court. Well, well, let me ask you before we finish up, Liam, what is utopia for you in relation to having the perfect working model around support and other measures that will ensure that the civil liberties of people are respected? I think that we need to have properly resourced services in every part of the country. We need to make sure that the guards have accurate information about those services and are able to connect people to the services because the guards will play a crucial role as the first point in call. And of course, I think to make all of this work, and to have it monitored and a proper oversight across the whole country. We need a National Victims Office, a Victims Commissioner, who will coordinate services and make sure that everybody is entitled to a basic level of service. We have blueprints for this from, for example, in Northern Ireland, where they're a good bit further down the road than we are. Uh, And I think in the next couple of years, the government is showing a commitment to an aspiration to do stuff in relation to uh, to victims of domestic violence and sexual violence, which is positive, but there's a lot more that can be done. This research, we hope, will provide a clear picture and a map as to what needs to be done. And we'd be hopeful over the next couple of years. I think public support is undoubtedly there. The public have very strong sympathy with victims of crime. The public understand how hurtful it is to people to be victimised of crime and they also know that they need to be supported so I think our understanding of the experience of victimhood is getting better all the time and and we'd encourage people to take part in this survey to contribute to that knowledge. Very good Liam Herrick, Director of the Irish Council for Civil Civil Liberties, thank you for joining us this morning. There's a couple of comments I just want to get get to before we move on. Uh, Leaving your car at home, this is proposals being discussed at Cabinet uh, this morning by the Transport Minister Thomas wants to know what are the government playing at telling people that they will need to leave their cars at home more often going forward? How on earth do our ministers think people will be able to travel to work or anywhere else for that matter? Given the abysmal state of our public transport system, leaving the car at home is not an option because the public transport infrastructure is not in place in their town or village. Just on that, Thomas... It's important to emphasise this is not happening today or tomorrow. This is up for discussion, but absolutely we take on board your your uh, particular points. But don't be fearful that you'll be slapped with a, a penalty at some point in the um, in the not too dear, near distant future, because this is probably going to take a year in terms of consultation. And says there is no way she could use public transport to get to work. She works in Drogheda but lives in Monaghan and the bus timetable is too irregular to work in her favour. There is no early morning bus that would get her to Drogheda in time for work so she has no choice but to drive. There are only four buses travelling on that route on any given weekday and even less buses operating at the weekend making it impossible for her to do without her car. There are many others in a similar situation to her. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Both Ireland and Northern Ireland have seen an increase in inward migration in recent decades. New research conducted under the joint research programme between the Department of Antishok, Shared Island Unit and the ESRI looks at migrant integration on the island of Ireland. It examines how migrants are faring in employment, education as well as attitudes towards migration in Northern Ireland and in Ireland and migrants' experiences of cross-border travel since Brexit. Joining us this morning to discuss this research, Dr. James Lawrence, Senior Research Officer with the ERSI. Dr. Lawrence, good morning. Thank you for joining us. How are migrants faring on the basis of what we know on, in this research? 
Uh, good morning, Alan. Um, well, I guess it depends to some extent on which indicator we're looking at. But the overall message kind of coming out of the research is that migrants are generally faring very well. Uh, so in employment and labour market, they tend to be at least as employed, if not more likely to be employed, than non-migrants do. And what does it mean then in a post-Brexit world for migrants? Have things shifted significantly or has it been incremental since that period? Well, because of the kind of lags and delays that have occurred since Brexit, it's quite difficult to actually <clears throat> excuse me, pin down the impact of this. But part of the research actually involved uh, undertaking a consultation with migrants and migrant groups from both north and south of the border. And within that, we were asking whether explicitly Brexit, how it had affected their lives. And one of the kind of key things coming out of it was it's very much increased people's anxieties about stability, about their, their place on the island, and in particular about their ability to cross the border now that Brexit has happened. And what about our attitudes to migrants? I mean, if we take the, the differential between Northern Ireland and Ireland, is, is there a difference there in terms of attitude? Yeah, so um, with the most recent available data we had, which was 2017 and 2018, we were able to directly compare attitudes towards immigration, uh, both north and south of the border. And interestingly, what we found was that uh, people in Ireland are generally more positive about migrants. They tend to view the impact of immigration as being more positive on their societies. And they, these things are kind of lower in Northern Ireland. And so this kind of begs the question, you know, why were we finding that attitudes towards immigration were generally more positive in Ireland? And through the kind of research, we were able to identify three key reasons. First is that people in Ireland are generally more optimistic about the future. They generally see that their life is more likely to improve, say, in five years' time. And the second thing is that people in Ireland generally have um, a belief that their voice is more likely to be heard in politics what we call political efficacy. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to believe that they can affect change in their societies through um, politics. And then the last factor is that people in Ireland generally have uh, more social contact with migrants. So they, they tend to have more migrant friends in their social networks and more migrant family members as well. And what was interesting is that these three factors together basically explained the entire difference in uh, attitudes towards immigration, north and south. And what do you put that down to? Is it just a societal thing? Is it an, It's just something that has evolved over time, or is it, has it always been like that? Well, so it, it's difficult to say whether it's always been like that or not. I think it's probably a combination of things, and and by identifying these three key reasons, it kind of gives us some clues. So, obviously... There's difficulties in uh, government in the north, um, the collapse of power sharing agreements and things like that. So that's likely to affect people's um, the extent to which people believe they have a voice in politics and that politics works for them. But then in, in Northern Ireland, uh, in, in the Republic of Ireland, we've seen a big increase in levels of uh, diversity 
So now uh, the latest estimates put the working age uh, amongst the working age population in Ireland. It's about 20 percent were born abroad. And so that just brings with it lots of opportunities for contact, really. You know, so in workplaces, in schools, in um, civic spaces, people are just more likely now to be having contact. So so with that brings a more diverse outlook amongst people who have that engagement with, with yeah. the migrant population. Very much so. So, so there's, there's a real kind of extensive literature on how contact with other ethnic groups, other migrant groups, really tends to improve people's attitudes towards um, difference and immigration and, and other, other ethnic groups. Talk to me a little bit about um, attitudes in relation to travel, cross-border, movement, freedom of movement. How, how has that manifested itself in terms of attitudes? Well, interestingly, one of the uh, things that came out of the consultation we were doing was that many people uh, had direct experience or had spoken to other migrants who had experience of what essentially they felt was racial profiling when crossing the border. So often non-white migrants, uh, and not even non-white migrants per se, non-white citizens on the island, if they were crossing the border, many of them reported experiences of police checks and passport checks. But the kind of uh, the, the stories uh, were very powerful in the sense that this didn't happen to uh, white white uh, ethnic groups who were traveling. This was very much something that they, uh, authorities would come on and directly ask the non-white people on these uh, on the transport. And so the kind of attitudes, I suppose, the attitudinal climate around really affects uh, how these groups are treated. Is it a deliberate undertaking on the parts of the on the part of the individuals who are engaged in uh, checking uh, individuals' documents or whatever it may be, or is it something that they just do perhaps unbeknown to themselves that they're perhaps pre-programmed to do it and they don't necessarily do it deliberately? No, I, I mean I, I think it, it's very difficult to actually uh, precisely pin down why, but one of the things that was um, coming out of this work is that there's a lot of confusion really around um, people's rights, especially post-Brexit and the rights of migrants to be traveling and where, uh, to be going north and south of the border. And, and uh, what it's found is that when there is confusion, when there's no kind of clear guidelines, people, authorities tend to act uh, apply whatever rules they think more strictly. So we think part of the story is that because of this confusion, because people are unsure exactly, this leads authorities to kind of over, let's say, police the idea of travel and migrants. That aside and other issues, is Ireland a good place for for migrant populations? So um, on the whole, I uh, the kind of data and the results coming out suggest it is indeed a, a good place. I mean, so there's migrant, uh, migrant rates of employment are very high here. Um, participation of migrants in, say, better quality, higher quality jobs with good pay and um, conditions, uh, such as managerial and professional jobs. 
as many migrants in those areas as well. And the results are showing that migrant children in school are doing at least as well as non-migrant children, if not better. And so there's kind of many indicators kind of coming out suggesting that indeed Ireland is a very good place for migrants and migrants are integrating well and contributing a lot as well. If you were to pick one key point from this research, what would it be? I think it's that um, we one so there's lots of positive, I suppose, findings coming out of it, but there's also obstacles that come out of it as well. So we see certain groups doing less well in the labour market, for example, uh, European East uh, migrants as well. So I think the key thing is we can't take our eye off the ball, so to speak. We need to be constantly um, looking at where migrants are doing well, but also where obstacles are arising. And when those obstacles do arise, um, implementing policies and uh, structures to support migrants um, to better uh, integrate and contribute to the island. Just let me ask you, Dr Lawrence, in relation to the Eastern European um individuals is that because of stigmatization what is it or is it possible to identify the reasons that they are not doing well so uh, from prior research that we've done it's probably a combination of things i mean um one is eastern europeans often have uh, lower english language ability than other migrant groups which we know is an obstacle to uh, employment especially employment in higher higher skilled jobs um, there's also the fact that there are difficulties in recognising qualifications from abroad as well. So sometimes uh, an Eastern European migrant may come with a qualification, but employers are not entirely sure how that maps onto their own kind of um, employment qualifications. And then, of course, there are things like social networks. Social networks are really important for people's uh, labour market outcomes, their job opportunities, better paid jobs. And oftentimes, um, especially if English language ability is a barrier, these groups, Eastern Europeans, tend not to have those kinds of social networks that really allow them to thrive in the labour market. But then, of course, there is a question of um, experiences of direct discrimination yeah. as well. OK, Dr James Lawrence, Senior Research Officer with the ESRI, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'll get your comments uh, a little bit later on in the programme, but if you want to drop us a comment in relation to any matter we covered this morning, email michael at lmfm.ie or you can WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Financial concerns are the main barrier students face in progressing to further education according to new research. The study led by College Connect researchers from Maynooth University engaged with 58 students in seven further educational colleges in the greater Dublin area. They listed family and care responsibilities, the cost of fees, accommodation issues and transport as the challenges they faced when considering further education. Ross Boyd is USI uh, Vice President for Campaigns and joins us online, this, uh, joins us on phone this morning. Ross, good morning to you. Um, let me just ask you, are you seeing a situation where students you represent have to forego courses because of these particular uh, constraints they're faced with? Uh, good morning. And yes, absolutely. That's something we see faced almost every day. I think especially talking to student news officers across the country, this isn't an issue that is particularly new, but it's definitely one that's sort of exacerbated, especially with the cost of living pressures and the face challenges, I think, 
especially with the high barriers of fees and especially with higher education, but also with further education. We've seen how many students have actually had to forego the courses and in some cases even some exam results being withheld from students because they haven't paid their fees for a certain semester. So it's only something that's been quite common, but especially more recently we've seen that it's sort of go up in a way. Okay, as as somebody who hasn't been in the world of academia for many, many decades at this point, perhaps you will outline to me what available resources are there for students in terms of low interest rate loans, supports from government in order to try and ameliorate some of the costs that they're faced before they take up courses? What's available to them? So for a lot of students, they have sort of it's sort of some financial support when it comes to actually getting into this education. So obviously, the credit union would do some lower interest loans, for example, they'd be probably the one to recommend. But at the same time, we sort of look in a way of USI of trying to just reduce those costs altogether. And I think that requires more government intervention. But at the same time, I know we've seen things like Susie and have been sort of quite influential in this. But however, Susie still has a lot of loopholes and a lot of places where students fall out between the cracks. And we've seen charities like St. Vincent de Paul recently having to fill those. And that's where a lot of this sort of income, sort of for low-income families, has been quite sort of evidence in sort of providing that funding where these state supports like Susie, such as the Student Assistance Fund in some cases as well, have been there. So... There are a few options for students, such as like Susie as well, as well as Student Assistance Fund. But at the same time, I think it's an overall approach as well to fund this as well, specifically. Okay, there's one cohort that are obviously going to be greatly have a much greater impact on, and that will be those who will have to travel from outside of Dublin to attend university, or outside of Limerick or Galway or wherever. And we're talking then about accommodation. That is a serious impediment, is it not? It's a massive impediment, and I think it's one of the biggest factors that we talk about when we talk about the issues that we face. Obviously, from talking to students, we held a lobby day uh, last week talking to TDs that actually asked them about the issues. And by far, that came up wasn't just the cost of living, but also accommodation, especially where we haven't seen the lack of investment in accommodation, student accommodation, and also in terms of the actual, the availability of it, which is more specifically that a lot of it is sort of privately owned and therefore more expensive and aimed for certain more fee-paying students, where it leaves a lot of students having to commute instead. And then obviously, as you mentioned, commuting has been a major issue in cost and availability, but obviously accommodation is probably by far one of the biggest issues and one of the biggest barriers to education, especially if you have to even get accommodation to the, your local campus but actually have to then still commute just to get to there. I think that's a big factor that sort of hasn't been addressed as much by governments in that as well, but definitely one of the biggest factors as well as cost. Can you give us an insight into the monthly living costs of somebody who you represent who is in accommodation, whether it be Dublin, Galway, Cork, Limerick or wherever, and then trying to survive day by day, paying for fees, paying for transport. What does it tot up to? Do you have any uh, top line figures on that, Ross? So I think from talking to a lot of students, I, I think from my experience as an officer last year, I think very much, very much it could be sometimes double to be up to 800 euro a month just in Dublin specifically, and what we've seen especially this year is that it isn't just a case of being 800 euros just in Dublin and cheaper everywhere else in the country, but rather this is a high figure that's happened by about, it's sort of increased by 100, 150 euros across the country. And Is that including rent, that 800 figure? That wouldn't be including rent, that would just be rent in itself, that would probably be okay. the 800 figure for a month, and that wouldn't include sort of any other expenses like sort of groceries and sort of transport and anything like that. So you could more or less close to double that figure, perhaps? It would probably more close to double that figure, yeah. And especially that's not even good, well, maybe even accounting like student fees, which are obviously 3,000 for undergraduate Irish students, 
and Sydney High for other students as well and all the other extra, extra costs that come with that as being a student. So it's not unreasonable to say that there are individuals, students who are um, living in to, to a degree of poverty, whether it's food poverty or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what we've seen especially is the increase in students applying for food vouchers and students to local shops just be able to sort of make it sort of day by day in that case. And especially what we've seen with the increase in the student assistance fund is that many students are having to go to student union offices to actually ask for a bit of money just to make it to a bill in that way. So very much we've seen an increase in the student poverty race is across sort of Ireland that way. And very much how it was bad in sort of previous years, but I think especially in the past year or two, it's gotten much worse and much more prevalent. And are we in a situation now where um, students are availing of produce from food banks, for example? Yeah, so actually many student unions have acted out with their own food banks and food pantries, for example. So, for example, in Goyan Court, they've done that as well. It's including other colleges, they've done food vouchers, so where instead of a sort of a bank itself, they actually get a voucher to spend that money and to actually buy their own foods. But very much we've seen that has been increased in sort of the funding that it has, but at the same time, how it's really just putting a bandage on an overall issue of the actual cost of college, basically, in terms of because of how much rent is, but also in terms of the actual additional cost of education, for example, the student contribution charge and the hidden fees for actually having that education. It's really sort of put those pressures on even further for students who are just trying to make it day by day. So when it comes to even the College Connect report, for example, it's very much not really news to us to hear as sort of an issue, except we just know how bad it is. Now, you spoke about students, some of them having to forego courses because of the um, the costs associated with them and the living costs, etc. But are you finding students who have had to opt out of courses halfway through or three or four months into courses? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that actually where we sort of noticed, especially after the first semester, that a lot of students do drop out in that case. However, with those who sort of choose to split their fees between the first semester and the second semester, a lot of students are having difficulty actually paying those second semester fees we've noticed in the past few weeks. And especially in a few cases, we've even had students who have not been able to fully pay their fees for the second semester and had their exam results from the first semester withheld from them, which has put a lot of additional stress and pressure on those students and made sure and felt like those students had to drop out in order because they couldn't actually do anything further with their degree because they literally had no exam results to sort of base it off in terms of their study. So this is definitely something we've seen, especially in that way. I think sort of we sort of drop our rate of that. We've, it's sort of relative sort of stayed high, but also we've seen a lot of the fails happen as well, especially through that sort of and just one other thing before I let you go, I presume that the majority of students have some form of part-time job to subvent those lucky enough to be able to dip into the bank of mum and dad. Yeah, I think a lot of them have to work like part-time jobs, but I think a lot of students even more recently have had to work full-time jobs as well. And what, we, what many sort of colleges say is that a student who actually does work, should only work a maximum of 15 hours, but what we've seen, especially from Eurosci and other student unions, is that this can be significantly over 15 hours, very much having to work full-time jobs and miss lectures because they actually have to afford their education. And it's put a lot of more pressure on students to actually have to get that job, especially where they don't have the finances from parents or guardians. And I think especially for us in Eurosci, I think we sort of want to remind people that Actually, having to work a part-time job or a full-time job just to afford the education isn't something right, and this shouldn't be something that's normalised. I think very much 
allowing people to sort of be more creative and express their ways and actually enjoying their student life and the college experience that they truly deserve is more beneficial than having to work a part-time job just to be able to afford any of that as well. So I think very much for our stance, it's actually on government to actually reduce those costs to actually bring that down for students that students don't have to rely on those part-time jobs. Just before I let you go, Ross, looking at the figures that you outlined to me there and what it costs per month, it strikes me that it's realistically cheaper in some instances, in some countries, to get educated cheaper than it would be here to get the same qualification. Is that a reasonable uh, assessment? Oh, that's incredibly reasonable. I think especially where we had a recent report from the European Union as about housing and as I think actually from Galway last year, and I think what we found out is that Ireland's actually one of the most expensive places to actually rent as a student, especially when you look at even places like Northern Ireland and United Kingdom, but yeah. then across Europe it's even cheaper. So very much more expensive, firstly, to rent, to even get a place to student accommodation. Then we talk about the student fees, which are the highest fees in the European Union, so that adds a little additional cost. So for many students, that actually is what they legitimately do, and especially what we've seen after leaving, so, and we've sort of had a lot of issues about leaving, so dates being late because it's actually delayed their progress to actually go into colleges in Europe. But however, what this shows that many students are actually relying on those sort of processes to go to Europe for studying rather than because they see it as not only more attractive, but especially more attractive because it's a lot cheaper, mm-hmm. even with the additional cost as well of travelling as well. And I think it's something that's only beginning to um, gather momentum over the past number of years. And I would imagine... Uh, every individual who you've spoken to and who I know have studied abroad, they said it's probably the best thing they have ever done in terms of broadening their horizons, getting a much more rounded education. And as you say, it's cheaper as well. OK, Ross Boyd, USI Vice President for Campaigns, joining us this morning. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Just getting to some of your comments before we wrap it up this morning in relation to the cashless society piece we did with uh, Deputy Matty McGrath. Betty says the GAA have ruined the crack associated with the going to matches by getting rid of the cash. Pay at the gate option. There is no fun attached to doing it online. There used to be a real buzz attached to going to your local club to buy our tickets. That's gone now. She says, are you still allowed to live people over the turnstiles? They used to do that when I was a kid. Are those, are those days gone? <laughs> I don't think we paid in. Oh, that's a long time. That's 40 years ago and the rest. Tommy fully agrees with Matty McGrath. People should have the option to use cash if they want to and no business or organisation should be allowed to refuse them that right. The recent move by the GAA to move ticket sales online is hugely disappointing to him as he has always saved his game tickets for every match over the years along with the match programme and it's not the same having a printout receipt with organisations like the GAA which has members scaling all age ranges then cash payments should definitely still be an option he believes because they will there will be some older people who will simply now stop attending games. 100% agree with you, Tommy. I remember there was an option. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you went to get your ticket online, you had an option, I think, to pay an extra one or two euro to have the actual physical ticket posted out to you. I think that's now gone. And all you're available, all that's available to you now is just the printout receipt. And to me, I have a real problem with that. Just like you, Tommy, I love the physical ticket in my hand. I love to be able to put it into the programme after the match. And I'm happy to start a campaign here this morning to get the GAA to put the option back online to allow you to get the physical ticket or else to be able to purchase the ticket. But I thought some of the, the centres and or the super values that you were able to get tickets, is that gone now as well? 
Maybe so. I don't know. I'm, I'll, I'll look into that. So I'm not going to say that you, you're not able to get them at your local centre or Super Value or wherever. I'll, I'll try and find out and get back to you on that. Now, we're fast approaching the end of the show. It's Tuesday. That means we have the latest uh, update on our crime spot. And we're joined by uh, Garda Olga Bacon this morning. Uh, Olga, good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. We'll get straight down to business and go back to the 25th of February. Cl- criminal damage in Moynalty. Yes, Kells Gardy, Alan are investigating an incident of criminal damage that occurred on Saturday the 25th of February. At approximately 4.30, two male youths interfered with machinery at a premises in the Sherka area of Manalty and then proceeded to damage plants and shrubs in the area. We're asking anyone who may have seen these youths at that time, they're asked to contact Kells Gardy Station on 046-928-0820. Okay, to Termin Fecken then, Big Street there on the 28th of February, there was a robbery. Yes, Gardaí at Drogheda Garda Station are investigating a robbery which occurred at the centre in Termin Fecken on Tuesday the 28th between 9.45pm and 10pm. If you're in the area and think you may have some information that can assist the investigating team, you're asked to contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. And on the same day, we go to Drogheda and Donore Road. Yes, so again on Tuesday the 28th, we were called to the All Pets Veterinary Hospital at the Bloomsbury Centre on Donore Road in Drogheda. Um, an unknown person entered the building between 8.15 and 9pm and stole a number of items. If you know anything or you think maybe to able to assist the investigation team or maybe you're in the area and have dash cam footage, again you're asked to contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200. At the Canterbrook Estate in Navan on the 1st of March, there was a burglary there. There was on Wednesday the 1st of March, a house in Canterbrook Estate. And this was broken into between 9am and 6.30pm. The home was ransacked and a number of items stolen. Perhaps you were out during the day and saw anything out of the ordinary, or maybe you were, again, driving in the estate and have dashcam footage. You can contact the investigation team at Navan Garda Station on 46 9079930. And then an incident uh, early March in Talonstown in RD. Yes, that was on Friday the 3rd of March between 7pm and 9.15pm. A house was broken into in the Talonsfield Manor estate in Talonstown. And again, the home was ransacked and a lot of damage was caused. Investigating members at RD Guard the station are appealing for any witnesses to contact them. And again, maybe you're out and about maybe you were driving through and have dash cam footage, you can contact early guard the station on 041-685-3222. And an incident of dangerous driving the following day on the M3. Yes, so between 8.30 and 9am on Saturday morning, the 4th of March, Gardaí attached to Ashburn and Navan districts were notified of a silver Nissan Micra travelling on the M3 northbound. They were informed that this vehicle had been stolen earlier that morning from an address in Dublin and had failed to stop for a Dublin Roads policing unit. At Junction 9, um, it re-entered the M3 in the wrong lane. This vehicle then U-turned towards Dublin where it had exited at Junction 7 and re-entered in the wrong direction again northbound where it was subsequently abandoned. After a short foot chase, four juveniles were arrested and conveyed to Ashburn and trim guard the stations. They were released with files pending to the National Juvenile Liaison Office. We are looking to see if anybody has any dash cam footage or witnessed this incident to contact the investigation team at Navangar the station on 046-907-9930. Now, what was the circumstances surrounding the suspicious approach to a motorist on, on the 4th and Carrick-McCross? 
Yes, our colleagues in Monaghan are looking for any witnesses to an incident in Carrickmacross on Saturday morning, the 4th of March. So this incident occurred at approximately 7.45am in the Clonseedy area of Carrickmacross. A motorist was stopped by a male driving a navy-coloured Toyota Corolla estate with what they believed to have been a 10LH registration place. This individual allegedly identified themselves as a member of Angarda Sheikhana to the motorist, but they couldn't provide any official identification. They subsequently left the area in the in this um, so in the Toyota Corolla estate without any further interaction. Carrick McCross Gardaí have conducted some high visibility checkpoints, and they're just asking any motorists who are travelling in the area between seven thirty and eight on Saturday morning and who may have any sort of video footage to provide it to themselves. You can contact Carrick McCross Garda Station on zero four two. Nine six nine zero one nine zero, or the Garda Confidential Line for any of these incidents on eighteen hundred treble six treble one. Just on that particular point, Alga, every serving member has to have a recognised ID, and if they refuse to show it, walk away or report it. Absolutely, every guard will take their ID out of their pocket, be they in uniform or be they in plain clothes. Um, you have the right to ask. You can, I would keep my door shut and I would walk away or I would drive away, go to your nearest guard station, go to a petrol station. If someone calls to your door, shut the door in their face and ring your local guard station, check these people out. We know there's people impersonating guards, but, you know, and people are feel obligated to do something if you're told somebody says they're a guard, but none of us take any offence if you check out our identity. Okay, and they shouldn't, for a second, you know, not uh, not wish to, to show their identity. Just before we leave it, crime prevention, sextortion, what is that? Well, to put it plainly, it's where the perpetrator tells you they'll share intimate information, images or videos, unless you do or don't do something or pay them in some way. And we're seeing it happen in a number of ways, either during a relationship or when a relationship breaks down. Maybe you're dating somebody online and you've shared intimate images sharing images on messaging apps and if juveniles are involved in this sometimes it's to do with bullying um, we have a recent social media campaign the messages that were putting out there they're messages that were sent by the perpetrator who has since been convicted it doesn't matter who you are how old you are your background your qualification profession or any of your personal circumstances it can happen to anyone we know people are maybe embarrassed but we are there to help and we've partnered with hotline.ie to create an online reporting facility. Okay, Alga Bacon, Garda Alga Bacon, thank you so much for joining us this morning for our Crime Spot. Now, just want to get to some of your um, particular uh, comments. I'm pressed for time, so I'll just go through one or two. Joe says this government can continue to, can't continue to kid themselves into thinking that they are on the side of ordinary people, but we, the public, know the truth. They have no real idea of how financially stretched some people are at the minute. Refusing to extend the eviction ban is just another example of their cluelessness. Unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it for today. Do I have time, Chris, for one more? I do. One more. I'll give it to you. ATMs. A caller was in touch to say there are two ATMs in Kells and they are both out of order all weekend. So people have to travel elsewhere to get access to money. Not an ideal situation at all. And Tina doesn't think a cashless society is the best way forward. People should be able to use cash if they want to. And if they prefer to do do so, it shouldn't be forced upon them, she says. That's it till tomorrow. Same time from everyone here. Till then. Good morning. 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.